My guest today has one strategy test. What will you tell the children? Son, I got up every day and I went to office to maximize shareholder value. I also participated in a lot of lean teams. Ah, and I was an agile employee. In my time, our employee engagement scores went from 4.5 to 7. And that's probably the only question today that matters. Apply that question wisely, broadly. Once you look them in the eyes, you'll know straight away if the grandiose strategy you are proclaiming has any legs. What we tell the children is the red face test of leadership. My guest today is Dr. Leandro Herraro. I wanted him on the show not only because he's irreverent and tells it like it is, it's also because he's part of the Organizational Network Analysis Summit, sponsored by OrgMapper and Maven. Dr. Herrero is an author, speaker, and organizational architect who dances like no one's watching. You're listening to Inspirational Insights Podcast, and my name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. Today, we're talking about understanding systems to engage employees in social and cultural change. Dr. Herrero, you're Spanish, living in London, and work internationally. How is changing and adapting organizations in different cultural systems the same and different. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Really lovely to be here. Uh, the first question is very difficult, so I assume the rest will get more difficult. So it's a good start. Changes between cultures and organizations, depending on what we call culture, if people refer to national cultures, for example, and I know that there is a lot of literature and God knows consultants and everybody else say the difference between one national culture and the other, which I think contain a fair amount of truth, but it's not all the truth. Actually, there are more differences between areas, between groups, between companies within the same uh, state, the same nation. As an anecdote, it's a way to say that there is more, and it's true actually, there is more difference between a French company and another French company than between a French company and an English company. So you start from these premises, then just, well, yes, it's okay and nice and fun to talk about the different cultures, but actually there are more difference and more similarities between groups, individuals, uh, even some perhaps industries. Bottom line is, I tell people and tell myself all the time, suspend judgment before you start saying, oh, these people are Germans and they are Germans and they are engineers. And there are Germans, engineers, and young. Then you are stuck. There is no room for anything else because anything that comes after is already predetermined. They are Germans, so they are going to be very rigid. They are engineers, so they are double rigid. And they are young, so maybe they don't know what they are doing. Any conversation that starts with strong assumptions and beliefs and, and preconceived ideas, we have now a, a short intervention within our programs that we start with all the time. We didn't do that in the past, which is put the preconceived ideas on the table. Anytime we start doing something, particularly new, before we start, we say, okay, where is the list of preconceived ideas that we have here? What? People respond, well, yes, we have preconceived ideas that this is going to be very interesting or not, very boring or very long, that change is going to be very difficult, that if the leaders don't change, nothing is going to change. Da, 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 da. unless we put all that on the table in the air, we bypass that. We are kidding ourselves that we are understanding each other because our minds is always going back to the preconceived ideas and then we don't progress. On the other hand, if you put that uh, on the table, it gets very healthy because sometimes very soon, very, very soon, sometimes people think and say, oh, I didn't see like that. Then I was going in the wrong 
way, then so opens quite a lot of doors at zero cost, just by saying, can we bring our preconceived ideas, bring our demons, bring to the table our beliefs, but in a nice way. It's just not threatening. It's to say, you know, what is the preconceived thing, idea that is going to happen here, whether it's at the beginning of a project, particularly the beginning of a project, at some point in the checking point of the middle of a project, say, okay, so what's the preconceived ideas about next? And it could be, well, that this is it and it's going to fail any minute or that it will go forever. You always learn a lot by asking very simple questions in general. So going back to the original question, I think there is a lot of preconceived ideas about what national entities do or don't, are or not. And like any stereotype, there is an element of truth, but you have to look at that and abandon it as fast as you can to be able to progress or say, having dealt with the stereotype, now can we please talk as human beings and leave the stereotypes around? And then you discover, maybe the stereotype was right. Maybe it was right. Maybe you validate that. Actually, there is a lot of truth on that. Maybe you discovered that was a stereotype, but actually what you find completely different. It's the same. There is a parallel with the preconceived ideas or the ideas that we have with some leadership teams that, that we say, okay, that leadership team, Oh, they get it. They know everything. They're good guys. They get it, the whole thing. They're ready for everything else. That re- re- leadership team, oh my God, it will take ages before they do anything. They don't get it. They're in a different plane. And you work sometimes with both groups or two groups in the same company in parallel. Uh, many, many times you get it completely wrong. It's exactly the opposite. People that you thought not in a million years they are going to get that and be an advocate of going in that way. Suddenly, they are converted because maybe they haven't seen anything like that before. I said, really? Can we do that? Is, are you sure they go with that? Yes, you can. Okay. And, and that was the most difficult guy on earth. And on the other side, people who say, oh, yeah, you will enjoy Peter and John and Mary because they are very ready for that. And Peter and John and Mary has, have incredibly amount of antibodies and they don't like anything that we are doing. So you get it wrong most of the time. And you have to leave a little bit of time to validate these things because people almost change courses and change places from being completely uh, on board to be less on board and the other way around. Suspending judgment is a good lesson. It's hard uh, for people, particularly for, you know, it's for me because I, I prefer not to have to suspend too much and just get on with the reality in front. But you learn a lot. So all that are elements of critical thinking as well that they need to be. As it happens with most of the critical thinking ideas, they are very simple, they are very cheap, and it just will be very stupid not to use them. It's as simple as that. People make a fuss about these things, and in reality, it's about, as you say, validation, checking in a human way, and, and try to discover what is underneath many conflicts or misunderstandings, which sometimes there are fear and all the human emotions that you know so well and everything. Okay, all is that part of our DNA, but we need to deal with that. And that's the whole idea of doing change and business change and, and viral change and everything that we do. First of all, I have to say, you're reminding me of my own facilitation experience where in, in the pre-conversations, they would say, look, it's an academy of research librarians. They're very serious Whatever you do, don't bring anything novel or creative in. (laughs) So I took that as a challenge and, of course, would bring that in. Terrified to do it, but I brought it in anyway. And I have these really stand-up, super serious guys who turned into stand-up comics. And the the rest of the group were just flabbergasted. A whole other dimension of the individual came forward. When you set the conditions for it, it's amazing what comes out. 
Second thing, with respect to critical thinking, I get the feeling that because there's so much negativity in the air and a lot of fear, that there's some confusion between critical thinking and negativity. Now, that's a nuance, but I'd like to explore a bit more further because critical thinking is what I heard you just say, which is a way of validating things. But the emphasis seems to be more on the critical. It's more on what's wrong with this picture versus what can we understand more about this picture by asking some contrarian questions. I didn't think of the deceptive angle necessarily. Uh, it's seeking alternative views, alternative narratives, even the ones that are very irritating and the ones that you don't want to hear about. It's about uh, not being self-centered and looking at yourself, which of us are sometimes. So critical thinking is about expanding, expanding your reality and trying to seek the truth or the kind of truth that you could find. Something that you don't do in two minutes. It's almost a way of living. It's, if you don't, if you don't live that way, then it's very unlikely that doing an exercise or whatever you just get it. I compare that with going to the gym. Not that I go to the gym. I don't know what a gym is. I've never been in a gym, and I will never be in my life. Uh, but I'm told that people going to the gym do very great things. But what I'm told as well is that. They go almost every day or very frequently. So that makes sense to me. So you go to the gym, that's what you do. You don't go one day a month and say, oh, I've been to the gym. And then thinking that it's going to do anything for you. The same applies to critical thinking. It's something that you do routinely. Not when you are in an exercise of critical thinking with all the quote unquote. So it's a way of looking at things. You need to exercise. You need to, you need literally go to the gym, the gym of ideas and therefore push yourself against some truths and some elements. And if you don't do as a routine, it's very, very heavy for people. Okay, there are a lot of talking and lots of things written about it, but it's very theoretical sometimes. So people don't click with that because think, oh, this is a kind of more a serious philosophical. There's not, not much philosophy about it, although nothing wrong with philosophy. It's about the simple questions like, could it be in a better way? Is there an alternative to that? Uh, is that the only way to look at things? What would such and such say about that? Uh, a series of questions, and I've got these questions somewhere. And we have actually one which would teach people to this questioning, but you teach the questioning for one day and they, okay, that's great. That's a very set of questions. And then you put it in the PowerPoint and you use it again. Again, that is just an illustration. But if you exercise this questioning, then it becomes very normal to inquire. You are right in the sense people exercise the critical thinking with others and ask questions and repeat questions. It could be very irritating. It could be, here we go again, some Leandro asking these questions. Yes, it could be very irritating. So you have to be elegant enough to be able to be heard. Otherwise you switch off people because you are always the one questioning that there is a better way or different way. But if it becomes more or less routine on a group situation in particular, so in a group of leaders or a group in which they incorporate that, then it's not just you, it's just everybody is allowed to ask questions and to challenge things. And then it becomes not a challenge for the sake of challenging everything, which many people do, uh, but something that is conducive to finding the truth, to finding the reality that is in front and not killing yourself and being 
aware that is incredibly easy for all of us to kill ourselves because we are biased to millions of things and to see reality in the way that we want to see, particularly from the enormous list of bias that are well described, 100 in more or less plus minus. There is one that I think is just common and we use all the time, which is confirmation bias, which means we hear what we want to hear. I'm starting a conversation and almost my brain is already wanting to hear something from you because I have an image of yourself an expectation, all that is very unconscious and is there. I can't get rid of that. And I don't even want to get rid of that. That's a side conversation. This is a war on bias this day because everything is biased. Bias is what makes us human. <laughs> Thanks God we are biased. The question is how aware we are and then how we say, okay, I'm going to be biased on that because bias are a shortcut that makes me shortcut to something. So they are all good because most of the time they work. If we use it in a negative way and a systematic way, then yes, I agree. Then everything is, is a bias. I'm a little bit tired of this war of bias, unconscious bias, unconscious bias, and everybody's bias. So because everybody's at war with everybody these days, obviously we need to be biased. And being biased is something. Being biased is incredibly human. How much of that you are going to accept that you are and then try to compensate and do things, but there's nothing wrong with being biased. I know I'm digressing from the, from the first part of the conversation. That's just fine. As you know, my field is decision-making leadership and adaptive decision-making in particular. This fits perfectly. I do remember attending a panel. I wasn't on it, but I was attending this conversation. And they said, what can we do to get rid of bias? That was one of the panelists' questions. You can die. <laughs> the best thing you can do is to yeah. die. Then you can get exactly. completely... Rid of. That would do it. That would do it. <laughs> yeah, but no, while it you're alive, I'm afraid you need to put up with that. But you see, the language that we're using today in the environment that we have across the world in recent years, particularly the most recent years, is a language, it's a language, I don't know whether you would agree with that, but it's a language of confrontation. The first thing that happens is language confrontation. We are creating or is being created a world of victims and a world of aggressors. And you are in one or the other, no matter what, by definition, before you open your mouth, just by being of a particular race or time or anything else or whatever, all these million bias that there are. We are in confrontational mood all the time. I'm old enough to know and to see that it wasn't like that all the time. I'm not going back to better life, better times in the past. I don't mean that. I mean that it's been an acceleration in the most recent years of this being in one place versus another and being a victim or being an aggressor or being village and all these languages that we have created, which obviously they don't come from the sky. There is a basis for that and there is a history. I don't deny that. But people don't remember the history. We are just going straight into caricature and saying he's biased, he's like that, you know, he's a victim. And uh, victimhood is a fantastic alibi these days. And sorry to say that because people will hate me for that. And all that is a mess. It's a complete mess in, in which it's incredibly difficult to find people who actually navigate through the whole thing and still keep mental health okay. Because you can really get... For example, now the, certainly in Canada, in the United States, the level of polarization has never been like that in history. There's always been a polarized part of the world, but not to these extremes that we are seeing, which became being anecdotal, as seen from 
miles away like myself. There's no anecdotes for people being there. But there was something that at some point we thought, oh my God, for goodness sake, come on, this is going to stop at some point and the people are going to be start being more sensible in the way that we treat each other. But no, it's going worse and worse and worse. I'm not very optimistic in the way this is progressing uh, in terms of our strong positions on things with political, social and the rest, which become caricature, become extreme, become by definition impossible to join, to get something together. So I don't know what kind of world we are leaving behind with this polarization that we have. But another digression, but I think it's important to note because in the world that we sit nine to five, meaning the, the business world, I don't see that. We are quite shielded on these things. This is something that happens afterwards when you go home in the television screens and in the things, and, you know, the, the thing. Nine to five, we are just protected. We speak our own language, our own tribal things, and everything is okay or not okay, but we don't see that much. But progressively, that this messy world is penetrating more and more the organization life, and therefore we are not shielded anymore. So we are more understand, oh my God, we have to be very careful in what we say, how we do, whatever it is. And this extreme worries me because if I see that every day people who I know very well and, and who don't dare to say something, everything becomes paranoid. Everybody's paranoid. Everybody's very careful on what to say, not to say, who to insult, not to insult, what to avoid. It seems sometimes that the only solution is the full retreat into something that is like that. It's a serious, serious problem. And there are people, there are groups in the U.S., particularly in the Christian side of things, that they have created things like the Benedict Alternative or the Benedict Solution, which is a way of saying, well, we are going back to some kind of monastic life on a secular way, but we are just retreat, 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 because the only thing left is retreat, because I'm so overwhelmed by... That I'm not active, let alone be active. Aging active, forget it. I'm going to retreat because retreat seems the only thing possible to do for me, my family, and the rest. I think it's very sad. It's very, very sad because imagine going alone and saying, no, no, but you have to be an activist and you have to be sort of a, an agent. We are killing that agency because people will retreat. Again, maybe not. That's an, an hypothesis. But going back to the beginning, the level of polarization that we have bothers me. And there are not millions of things that bother me, but this one bothers me a lot. I had a great conversation at one point with Anna McGrath, one of my colleagues in the Great Work Cultures, and we talked about specifically using polarization. Two groups, two only held, but hopefully open to having a conversation, put them together. My feeling about it is that, and I've done this, you walk into the conversation where you've got two very polarized views, but you have a modicum of openness just a teeny bit of openness that allows you to have a conversation and see more routinely in one of my networks. Everybody will be very diverse, but there's an acceptance of the ideas and some respect for it um, versus the argument that I'm right and you're wrong, which is completely pointless. There's not much of a conversation you can have yeah. under those conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's hope in that sense, but it will take definitely a pretty um, big heart. It'll take caring. And we saw it. Mandela first stepped into the governance in South Africa. Those were some of the tough discussions that had to take place. Um, but I think those are the ones that we need to have. But it will take a higher order, a higher level of leadership than the idea that I'm right and you're wrong. That just uh, doesn't do anything. doesn't help. 
I want to roll back to preconceived notions for a minute because moderating conferences, all these places I'm in, the one thing I've been hearing, oh, since time began in the early 90s is that culture change in organizations, which are, are being pushed to the brink to do so, not just because the cost of bureaucracy is becoming ridiculously high, but also because it's built on stability and our world requires a lot more flexibility, a lot more adaptive response to the very different conditions that we're in. One of the things I hear constantly is that idea that, oh, culture change is going to take 30, 40 years to change business culture and organizations, uh, company's culture, uh, or 10 years or 30 years, whatever. There's a magic number that everybody's got attached to. This puzzles me for a couple of reasons. Number one, back in 09, I watched a well-done movie on Cities on Speed with Bogota. It was the story of how two politicians over 10 years transformed Bogota, Colombia, which at that time was a city of four to five million people, and anarchy into a modern city. And they did so using pantomime, uh, really novel approaches. It was probably one of the most brilliant uh, ways to orchestrate a change of that magnitude with that many people. Tough decisions were made, organizations of 100,000 or more, and they're saying, oh, we can't do it because, you know, it's going to take 50. Can we bust that preconceived notion around how long it takes? Yes, we can, with pleasure, yes. Uh, let's give it uh, two years. <laughs> let's give it two years instead of 20. Yeah, it is a problematic uh, topic sometimes because we make it more difficult than, than it is the topic and the reality. Um, first of all, when people say, how long will it take to change something? Well, it's changing all the time. So the, the premise is already false. It's changing all the time. There is this almost preconceived belief, particularly in consulting groups, that the organization is there and nothing is happening or it's in a terrible situation and then the consultants arrive, the project is declared, you start the project and then you are there for two years or three years and doing something and the time stops. So now we are stopping the time because we are going to do change. And then when change is done, we will declare that change is done and then we carry on. It's an incredibly naive and arrogant thing. By the time you start, things are already changed from the previous day or the previous month or the previous hour. What change program does is to click with a particular point and a state of that organization and then intervene and modify and do something, whatever form or whatever methodology used, in our case is viral change, and then over a period of time things may happen and then you declare and decide that you leave, but things continue to change. So the question is, what is that you leave behind as opposed to what you've done and you have achieved? Language matters quite a lot. The language of legacies is very, very important. We also, we all should think, what is that I leave behind? What I'm going to tell the, the children? But it's not... That period in between the before and after, which is where we operate, has a before and has an after. And this, which is the context, and this is something that is very helpful as model because you think it's not that it's going to take three years or four years or whatever. It's going to take million years if needed. The question is, how much I'm going to do over a period of time that I have been given and have the privilege to intervene and with others and do something, how much I'm going to do on this period of time? That has a before and after. And I think that for a large organization, uh, medium-sized large organization, business organization in particular, I think 
a good rule of thumb, which has nothing to do with mathematics or anything else, is a couple of years of intense working together is enough to twist things, to change directions, to create something that is neat, is different, to elevate people to a level of agency and action that you can then measure and see, etc. So a good shot of a couple of years, maybe three if it's very large, is what is needed. Beyond that, there is something wrong. Beyond that, there is something wrong in the premise or something wrong in the system or something wrong in other things happen, etc. So the whole language of change and culture is very contaminated by, uh, as we all know very well, uh, by a mechanistic view of life and organization. It's pure mechanics. It's close, close to Newtonian mechanics than reality. You do that, and then you do that, and you do that, and you change that, and you change the other. That's pure mechanics. Life is not like that. The difference between a machinery and an organism, and the organization is the machinery. You can stop the machine any time. You can't stop an organism. The organism will die. So organisms don't stop until they die. So we are working with something that is a living organism and therefore many, not all, but many of the very predictable and ideas and many of the tools and the assumptions and the mechanics that the traditional chains of organizations has given to us don't work very well because they are not fit for the organism. They are fit for a machinery. We are applying an engineering model to something that is a biological model, a living model. And that is very well known, and there is nothing particularly uh, new to that, but we keep doing something the same. When these famous metrics that are around and say 70% or 75% of the change programs and cultural change programs fail, and people scratch their heads, why is that? Very simple, because we keep doing exactly the same. It's no mystery. Why do you fail? Because you've done exactly the same as McKinsey, McKinsey is exactly the same as Bain, and Bain and Deloitte, and Deloitte to the other, and the other, and the other, and all these big houses, these big monsters with my respect, they are keeping doing the same, and we are copying them. So, of course, we can get the same statistics. And then, when we want to get more scientific, because that's what business want to be, uh, then we say, okay, well, let's see what's going on. And the idea of scientific thinking and research by business, uh, as you can see in, in any publication, is to go around and ask 100 CEOs what they think. <laughs> that's, that, that's what we do. So the latest thing, the latest trends is in the 2022 trends, trends for the working organizations, the future of work, blah, 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 is here. How did you get to that, to these 10 principles? We interview 1,000 CEOs. Well, congratulations. So, so you interview the same guys, the same tribe. And of course, you don't even have to have the research. I can tell you exactly what they're going to say because they are saying that all the time and they are talking to each other and also they're reading the same blogs and magazines and going to the same Davos and going to the same things. We are carbon copying each other. Of course, it's that plus minus. Uh, it's fascinating how really stupid, excuse my language, some of the things. The number one problem in 2023 across the world is going to be talent. How much did you pay to get to that answer? I mean, how much did it cost you to say the word talent? So last year, talent wasn't there? Or, or talent has come back from, from the heaven? No, it's going to be talent and then an engagement. Oh, engagement. Here we go again. The famous engagement. So, it's so boring. So predictable. So 
in lack of imagination that we are navigating with the same glasses and seeing the same things and repeating ourselves. We need to shake up this. It needs to be shaken up. It may come from different people, from people who are challenging conventional wisdom, but it's not the commonality within the business arena in general. I'm talking about the business I know, which is the Western. I can't extrapolate that to China or to the East because I don't have the experience other than what I read in books. But in the Western environment, is very predictable, repetitive, uh, because it's very incestuous, because we are talking to each other. We are using the same terms, the same things, the same demons, the same agents and the same victims. And the, the play is the same play, the same play. Season one, season two, season three, season four, but it's the same play. It's, it's, it's just the same as before. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting carried away by this business of lack of imagination, but uh, that's how I see it. No, I love it. The other part for me is related to that. I'm going to roll back again and just frame it up with the observation as a professional facilitator that the we're trying to work with a complex system using linear tools and thinking. People sit back and go, well, I only got incremental results. I wanted this and I got this. And that, that's because it's, you know, your processes that don't fit the design of the structure you're in. Elsewhere on this podcast, I have the conversation with the two Irish health folks who you worked with. Tell us more about lifting the thinking from the usual, which is a mechanistic, you know, let's put a hundred change projects and see if we can break down in order to break through kinds of situation versus the Irish health project where there was a lot of work done on understanding complex systems and understanding that the biological nature of organizations and the ecosystemic nature of organizations. What's the shift? What is the biggest learning point for anyone who is looking at making the change work inside their organization? Well, for us, environmental change is very clear. We distinguish rigidly and clearly and obsessively between what I call the two worlds, world one and world two. World one is the world of communication in which people send messages to the top to the bottom. Usually it's based on information based on hierarchical channels most of the time. It has to do with instruction, with having meetings and discussions and creating PowerPoints and creating information going up and down the system works. Everybody's familiar with this world in business and it's, it's the world that dominates our thinking when we talk about management. It's about usually create some strategy and then document and the document that, that explains the document and then you pass to the next one and say, here you are, this is what we need to do and there is, here is the set of PowerPoints, etc. I know I'm in caricature, but that's what it is. But we distinguish that world versus another parallel world, which is coexisting with world too, which is where the currency is behaviors, is what people do, is not what people necessarily say or write or put on PowerPoints. So what I do is immediately copied by other people around me. Good or bad, it will be copied. And when it's copied, it will increase. It will spread because that's how human beings from very small uh, work. We are very sensitive to the environment. It's, it's very rational. It's very unconscious sometimes, but we end up doing and thinking and talking what next door to us people are. We see that in, in organizations, etc., etc. It has a good side and a bad side because we can, if what is to be copied is bad habits, bad habits will spread. To be copied is good habits, good habits will grow. So that's why the kind of organization matters quite a lot for somebody to jump in because it depends on what is inside, like we call the petri dish of the organization. And then you have behaviors and you have a mechanism. In focus on behaviors for us is 
fundamental. Some people may think well, it's a bit of reductionism because there are other things and behaviors. Sure. But from the things that I can deal with, which would be beliefs, and we've been talking about that, assumptions, attitudes, etc., etc., all that is very difficult to manage or agree with compared with behaviors. I am an apologetically behavioralist, which I know is not a sensible thing to say, when it comes to decide what kind of things we want to see. In the what people do not do, what is acceptable, not acceptable, like, don't like would like to have more or less. It's plain language, plain simple, but it's behaviors. It's what people do. It's not what people think. It's not what people believe. I need to hook in what people do. If I do that, then I have a hook that allows me to engage other people and say, can we do something similar? We don't even have to agree on everything, but is there a minimum set of behaviors that we can agree that if we had this in the organization and we had it at a scale, in whatever mechanism, magical or not, that would be the kind of company we want to have. And if people say, yeah, sure, that would be good. If we could do that, we could do that, we could do that. Okay, so we are talking now. We have an image of this organization. How can we call that organization? That's the wrong question. You don't have to call it anything. It's no name. It's a no-name thing. It's just something that we agree that we do and we won't do. We agree that as far as we can see, if we did that, we will be in a better place. And that's what is saying, changing the culture. That's it. That's all I want to know. And then if that's agreed, and okay, fine. Then the next step is to say, how are we going to really spread this getting bigger? Because to have engaged on this conversation that we are having, the top 100 people in the organization, when there are 5,000, it's not going to make a difference. And many of the organizational development interventions that we have in Well One deal with the leadership team and the leadership team underneath and the next layer and the next layer. And then we are run out of bodies because we can't carry on with the rest of the organization. So the rest of the people will just catch up one way or another. Obviously, that's why we don't do a very good job in that world. Uh, but if you are here in World Two, then the question is, okay, how are we going to scale up? And it's plenty of data and plenty of empirical and reality that I can testify for the last 25 years that from all possible mechanisms of increasing these behaviors, to call it something like that, as mechanistic as that, is peer-to-peer. It's peer-to-peer versus top-down versus something else. We rely on peers, we copy peers, we may want to know, but a peer-to-peer is a very strong force for good or a very strong force for no good. It's very blind in terms of morality, but if we get it right, then it will be for good. Peer-to-peer is like an infection and actually is a human infection around this set of behaviors that we have that's what we need, labels or not. And we craft that, we find people who are sometimes through social network analysis that you are familiar with and you've been there through see who are the people working peer-to-peer will have higher highest influence versus all and it's influence based exclusively on the connectivity that they have. I know sounds a very simplistic parameter and it's quite not um, grandiose compared with people who think, I don't know, we have to have role models and the RIS and the heroes and the rest and volunteers and the rest and up to arms. You know what? Give me highly connected people and I'll do magic. Give me a bunch of role models, and I may not don't know what to do with them. 
because a role model could be a very nice guy role model, but actually his area or her area of influence is five people. So it's a very good role model for five. But what I want is 5,000. Role models don't do much to me. I'm not against them. I just want them to be part of these people who have highly influence and highly connectivity. We engage them through a process of understanding why we need them. We meaning the organization. And then there is a process of acceleration of the changes through storytelling. It will take us a little bit of time to explain. And finally, the five component, and I'm talking about components in a dissect the elephant in this way, is what we call backstage leadership, which is a way of training and engaging the leaders to say, look, your leadership is going to be from the back. It's a backstage, not at front. You can have that in the front you want because you still have a leader with your management team by all means. Carry on doing whatever you were doing before. But as far as the culture is concerned, actually, you have very little power. You have very little power. So you want to engage people with more power? Yes, please, if you are a serious leader. Okay, these are the people, there are other people. You have power, but not as much as you think you have because your power is very hierarchical. There's nothing wrong with that. Keep it, enjoy it but there is more power out there. And therefore, we get to other people engage them. It is in caricature, almost the, the cooking of all these things and the process a, a year, a couple of years, obviously there will be some measurement of what's going on, sensing what's happening, etc. Storytelling and the rest. It's a complex way of doing it, but it's all very manageable, very doable, and we've been very successful for many years. Not not the standard way of doing change in organizations because the standard is what the big guys are doing with 200 MBAs and 2 million PowerPoints, but that's what we do. And it works. For whatever, whatever it is, it works and it works very well. I have no intention of doing differently for the rest of my life. Wonderful. I'm glad to hear that <laughs> because it brings forward the best of what it is to be human and plugs it into staying relevant, staying well, being healthy and adapting the organization to be the container to support the people doing the work. That just makes complete sense. Any change, program, any culture, change, whatever, has to be very aware of, of who is uh, who is the protagonist, that we would say more in the Spanish language. Who is the protagonista? Who is in charge? Who is the protagonist? And the protagonist is not the leader. The protagonist is individual. It's all of us. If we can get to that, then you have an infection. Then you have what you want. You have culture is not just what happens at the leadership team level and everything else. So the role of the leaders is, to me, is more the role of an architect that creates the conditions for all the, the scaffolding, the way of this happening, the permissions if you want to use it. But that's what it is. It's very backstage as opposed to front stage. Day to day, you people don't come to the offer every day and say, I'm going to watch how Mary behaves today because it's my boss and depending on what she does, then I will do. It doesn't happen. Now, she's irrelevant. What people do unconsciously is they fit into an environment and the conversations, the way of doing things. Peer-to-peer -peer is what shapes the culture. The leaders don't do that, but they have a significant role in creating the conditions for this to happen. The leaders could block this if they want it, but if they don't do, if they withdraw, then I say, then, and it's not a passive withdrawal and say, well, I'm, I'm just standing back and see what happens and close my eyes. No, absolutely not. Don't close your eyes. Open your eyes more than before, but it's your eyes to see what's happening, to see the reality, to see the conversations. 
but let it be. I have to say, I have a relatively good record, maybe in 90%, 80% of leaders I'm blessed with programs in which they have understood that. They have struggled sometimes, sometimes not, but with some exceptions in which it's been completely very difficult. People get that, maybe, maybe because people are tired of not playing a role now. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, I can't claim this is universal. Absolutely not. I'm just giving you my experience. This doesn't happen in five minutes, obviously, because the default position from the beginning uh, is going to say, well, we are going to repeat what I have done before. Or I heard that is happening. Maybe with these guys now, they are different. They sound good. They sound, but the expectation is it will be another form of so-called change management and cultural change. And when we start twisting all that to a more human reality, more based and bottom-up more than anything else, yes, there is a reaction of interest, sometimes of caution. Some people don't like it, but I have to say, I don't have a bad experience on people seeing. You gain the, the trust of a leader, whatever it is, that you can have a conversation and say, do you know that you are not as powerful as you think you are? If you can reach that point of conversation, sometimes the answer is, yeah, why, why are you telling me? I know that because people have experienced that there are other kinds of power. Uh, so that's what we do. That's the part of one of the, the three components that the, our company works on. Thank you. Wow. Uh, we could go on for quite a while. Probably, <laughs> yes. A page or so. At some point, I need yeah. to circle back and do that with you because it would be fun, amongst other reasons. Lots of value here for anyone who is contemplating being real about transformation instead of just talking about it. Uh, my present theory is that the preconceived notion of how long change will be is what often makes companies do it half-heartedly, go into it in a light and fluffy way. You have on Vimeo a masterclass. You've got a lot of things going on. You've got some wonderful books. I have The Flipping Point, and I thought what a lovely shot way of getting into the headspace of seeing things differently. I think it's one of the most powerful ways of shifting view on what's possible and what humans could do. In but going back to the Vimeo program, would you suggest that for people just wrapping their heads around a different approach? Where do people start yeah. in order to start moving toward what we're talking about here? In our website, in the selfemployed.com website, there is an area called the Academy, and there are lots of videos. Some of them are free, some of them are not, some of them are short, some are long. The masterclass is the longest, is, is the one that requires a few hours, and it's well structured, and people use that quite a lot. Particularly, you are going to do it in your own time, in your own theme, taking your own notes, because it's a really conversation with me. It's as simple as me. It's me talking for many hours. Sorry about that. That's the only inconvenient part of the whole thing. But you can go through all the components. That is, to me, a good start because it has everything. But there are many other pieces that you can explore in the website. They are all in the website for people who want to even start watching things. So have a go, have a look at the website. And you think the masterclass is, by definition, a good set to spend a few hours taking notes and taking it seriously as opposed to... It's not entertainment. A little bit of structure on going through many themes that we have discussed today, but in a structured way. That's yeah. the masterclass. Thank you. I want to thank you very much for being on the program with me today. What a lot of fun just to chat about all this stuff. Anything else you want to add that would support people who are starting to wrap their heads around the approaches that you're talking about? You mentioned The Flipping Point as a book. It's a good start because it's just beyond the products and services. It's called The Flipping Point because it makes the point that we try to flip some ideas and some preconceived ideas. And there are 
a few of them, and they are very short snippers that you are completely in the, in the dependent. But people love it because the structure is easy to go through. It's a good way to perhaps test your our own thinking. It's a very good way to, to confront with maybe the kind of uh, thinking that I'm bringing to the party. So thanks for that. Thank Here's an odd observation, perhaps. That Flipping Point book <laughs> breaks all the rules. I love it. Every single thought nugget that you have in there is in a different font. What they always tell you is you got to have the same font. you got to be consistent. I thought, this is so refreshing <laughs> and well, so inspiring for me. Thank so you. thank you. I noticed it and I thought, wow, this is fantastic because it says, meh, we don't have to stick by the rules all the time. In fact, there are some rules that are meant to be broken. I think we're in a world now where the rules are breaking. So we can hide from that, which certainly I did for a long time, or we can come out and work together to make things better. And I think that's the state we're in. Thanks very much, Donna. In Margaret Heffernan's book, Beyond Measure, The Big Impact of Small Changes, she points out that great thinking partners aren't echo chambers. They bring well-stocked minds, new perspectives, and challenge. And then she asks, what do I have to offer that no one else can bring? This speaks to the value of not only diversity, but also shifting perspective, the authoritative way of approaching things where there's only presumably only one smart person in the room is over. It's been over for a while. When people hire talent, then obviously the opportunity is to work with that talent and let them do what they do best. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Follow me on LinkedIn or join me on LinkedIn. I've added a tips jar to this podcast so that I can get some production help. Any support you can give there would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for joining me.